five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 108 of the Squid and Ultimate Leafs Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs Fan. Joining me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Uh, not too bad, Mike. I finally uh, started putting my car in the garage for a change now, so got I had to go out and get a lot of snow off it, so I just figured, <laughs> what the heck, I may as well put it in the garage now, and, and then I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I don't have to be packing golf clubs anymore, so that that's one fear you don't have to worry about. No, but a lot of hockey equipment. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. True, very true. <laughs> well, speaking of hockey, that's what this is, a hockey show. And we're very proud to bring you, or repeat for you, the second episode of our great interview with Boris Salming, the late Boris Salming, and I, I can't get used to saying that. And yeah. we played part one for you last week. And part two, we're going to give you this week also. And for those of you who have heard it, listen to it again. And those of you who haven't heard it, it's worth listening to. And Squid, and I know we talked a lot about him last week, Pre, and we don't want to give away what was what happens in the interview. But, you know, it just seems to me, the more I, when I re-listen to this and listen to him speak, just how much he was able to sort of grasp this new culture that he came to from a guy from a faraway country. And remember, this is going back in the seventies. This isn't today where you mm-hmm. got internet and you can scope all these things where he just seemed to be able to grasp how he was supposed to be, you know, how he's supposed to act as an athlete, ingrain himself in the community and all those things. I mean, did that surprise you when you first met him? Um, it, it did when I first met him, but then when I got, when I got to know him better, it didn't surprise me at all after <laughs> after a while because, I mean, he – well, mind you, when I came over here, he had already played in Toronto probably for seven or eight years. Yeah, that's right. So by that time, he was well-established and, you know, had – but I, I think he adjusted very, very quickly, whereas uh, the other gentleman that came over with Inga him – Inga Hammerstrom. Hammerstrom. I don't think he adapted very well. And – um, Bory adapted quickly uh, with the culture and the NHL uh, type of hockey and everything. It didn't take him very long. And uh, by the time I got there, he was settled in like he was there for 40 years. I mean, that, you know, he was uh, comfortable with, with everything and uh, just seemed like he had been there for a long, long time. Well, one of the things we did touch on last week, a little bit of Inghamstrom, and we did allude to how Borja had thought he was the most gifted of the of the four of them when they were looking at Ennis, Hedberg, mm-hmm. and Alf Nielsen and Borja. And that, but Inga did have a hard time. And, you know, maybe explain to the listeners how important it really is for teams to bond together. You hear about them doing it today when they go up north for those retreats. But back mm-hmm. in your day, you didn't have the luxury of that. It was more or less going out and having a beer. Yeah, it was uh, it was lunch after practice. Uh, you know, you play on a whatever, say a Saturday, Sunday, and then you didn't play till Thursday or something. So Monday after practice, 
like we had very few days off back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not like today. And so we'd play Saturday, Sunday, have a little practice on Monday, and then we'd go for lunch. And the whole team would go, pretty much. And, you know, you didn't have to stay. You could have a beer and then leave after a half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it might be. And I think that was very, very important uh, back in those days because, you know, especially when I came over to Toronto, then we started bringing guys in from the Czech Republic and different countries. So I think it was very important that we did that because it made them feel a little bit more comfortable. Well, that's the thing. If you've got a guy who doesn't speak the language or is uncomfortable trying to speak the language and you don't know him that well, and he goes to somebody else in the team that does speak his language and you're speaking to the English speaking guys, the French guys are speaking the French speaking guys. It makes for a very divided room. It does. And it's funny that you bring that up because I remember the year that Harold canceled the charters halfway through the season because the flight attendant wouldn't let him have chocolate bars <laughs> because he was a diabetic. And yeah. of course that was King Clancy who told her that. Yeah. And he, she slapped, she slapped his hands and you can't have any. And he, the next day canceled the charters for the entire second half of the season. Well, that was a year that Freecher in a check Duras and a couple other checks came over. So we started staying overnight on the road and we started going out with these guys. And we were the fifth best team in the league in the second half because we got to know them better. They got to know us. And then there was a lot more trust amongst us um, in the second half. And we were the fifth best team in the league in the second half. And I'm not even sure Harold was, you know, knew that. <laughs> no, but you know what? You made a very, you make use a very good word there that, that, that I want to, you know, expand on trust. Yeah, because think about this, and and people not not involved in the game at that level won't get this because they think, come on. But the trust fact is, look, if you're a guy who's very unsure about speaking the language, but you get out and have lunch with him, and he watches your body language, and you're trying to help him make mm-hmm. his point, make you know say something, get the point across, and then you same to him. Well, all of a sudden now, when you're in the dressing room, and if you hadn't done that. You're off in the corner talking to, you know, Billy or Danny Dow or somebody, and they're thinking, oh, is he talking about me? What are they? They're probably cutting me up or say, or, and you could be thinking the same of him talking to, you know, Free Turn and mm-hmm. together or something like that. So this way, it brings everybody almost on the same page. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think, I think amongst the team, there's got to be a lot of trust between everybody on the team, for, for instance, and there's got to be a lot of trust from the coach to the players and the players of the coach. And I, I think if that trust isn't there amongst the players and from the coaches to the players and vice versa, then I think you're in for a long season because you've got to have trust in your teammates and your the guys that you're out there battling with, especially back in our era where it was a completely different style of game. You had to know that everybody was on the same page. Well, and the other thing, too, is it, it it humanizes it also because this guy who's coming from a different country mm-hmm. and is trying to climatize himself with you and the surroundings in our culture, so to speak, for lack of a better word to phrase it, all of a sudden you look at him in a different light than this guy just coming over trying to steal your job. Yeah, no, absolutely. When when you when you start to hang around with them and and you go out together and you have a couple of beer and you and they start learning the language a little bit. You know, then you can kind of 
let them know, like, like if I'm talking to Billy, I'm not talking about them. You know, I'm not saying something bad about them. We're just talking about something between us. And the same thing, if they talk to me, we're not talking about anybody else. So I think, again, that becomes, you become uh, trustworthy of your teammates and they become trustworthy of you. And I think that's very, very important in a team sport. So coming back to that, that Daniel Hammerstrom, he was a very gifted player, no question about that. And he had the talent, he had all the, he had it all, but he just couldn't bring himself to adapt to the new surroundings. And Boria talks about it on the show, on the podcast you'll hear, and I don't want to get into too much detail and give it away, but he really worked on him to try to get him to just try and make the effort, just come out with the guys, sit there, be a part of it. You'll help your language because you'll be sitting around the guys talking. They'll work with you, and it just brings you closer to the group. And he just really couldn't comprehend that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened in that situation, but obviously, Boria adapted fairly quickly, and Inga didn't. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he didn't want to be over here. Maybe he, you know, part of him still wanted to be in Sweden. Yep. Uh, and not over here in Canada. I, I don't know, but. Uh, he just never really adjusted to the the type of game they played over here and the culture. I don't think he really got into it at all. Did you guys, uh, I'm just moving a little bit further, speaking of the culture, because, you know, you had the guy who started it all was the guy who was signing the paychecks with a couple of his comments about Ingup. Did oh, yeah. Bory ever make any comments to you about Harold? Did you guys ever have a discussion with about him? Well, we talked about it. Uh, you know, he never really said a whole lot about Harold. He didn't talk bad about him. Mind you, neither did any of us because Harold really never treated us poorly. He just didn't pay us enough, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> and and that sort of thing. Uh, but, I mean, we stayed in the best hotels. We chartered, like I said, the whole time. And, you know, the only thing was – most of the guys on the team probably weren't paid what guys on other teams that were doing the same thing were, were getting paid. And that was the only thing. But so there was, we never really talked about Harold that much. I mean, uh, it just wasn't a, a topic of conversation amongst the guys because everybody knew the situation. <laughs> everybody knew Harold's going to be Harold and we can't change that. And no matter what we do, it's not going to change. Well, we talked about it many times in many of the podcast stories of, you know, players being delayed for practice because Harold's getting his feet rubbed or getting mm -hmm. a massage or getting coming out of the sauna himself or something. And the players have to wait outside. And Boria does talk a little bit about that, that after a while he would drive into the rink every day. And as he's walking through the gardens, he would just be thinking, what's the circus going to be today? Or what's the freak show that's going to be happening? What, what am I faced with today? So he just kind of shrugged it off as part of, it's just part of everyday life of being a Maple Leaf with Harold around. Well, and that's pretty much how everybody kind of <laughs> dealt with it, Mike. I mean, there was no way of getting around it. There was no way of changing it. There was no way of making it different. It is. It was what it was going to be, and you had to just kind of roll with the punches, so to speak, and and let Harold be Harold. And <laughs> there was no other way to get around it. Now, I. Uh any now we've had you know you've we've re-listened to the the pod and stuff like that but any um 
any memories of other memories of Boria that stand out to you? You've had time over the last few weeks to think about something that stands out. We know we found out the fridge full of vodka was a pretty good eye opener, and that's a pretty good, decent story. But anything else about Boria that just kind of just you just sort of chuckle when you think about it? Uh, no, I guess probably the biggest one was was him going skiing on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, that up, one we up talked north about. Yeah. And, and coming down with the goggle marks around his eyes and then going out and being probably the best player on the ice. And you, you sit there and wonder how the heck did he ever do that? Like, how did he go skiing for two or three hours with his family, then come back and play? And I mean, I know I, I certainly couldn't have damn well done it. I, I know I couldn't have. And by the way, ski. he's not playing eight minutes ski a game. either, but <laughs> hey, by the way, Squid, he's not playing eight minutes a game either. Yeah, you're right. He's playing. He was playing about 30 minutes a game. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know. It's just uh, like I, I've always said, he was just a specimen of, of a of a person and uh, on and off the ice. Like, I mean, he was a wonderful guy. He treated everybody with the utmost respect and as everybody did with him. And, uh, you know, that wasn't the same with everybody, uh, but he treated, treated everybody the same. Now, what about uh, what was his work ethic like in practice? Uh, he was one of the hardest working guys. I mean, uh, not surprising. He used to piss me off a lot of times because you'd get by him and you'd, you'd, you'd get him ready to shoot the puck, and you, you, you're saying to yourself, "Okay, I got a, I got a shot." And then the next thing, you put a stick between your stick and, and your body and go like this, and then puck would go off your stick into the corner, and then you'd, you'd never get a shot. So that used to bug me a little bit, and uh, oh, I used to give it to him. I used to give it to him. I go, "Oh, card for you. What, what are you doing that for?" <laughs> he goes, "Well, I'm going to do it in a game." He said, "So I got to get used to it." I said, "Okay, okay, I get it. I get it." <laughs> and plus, he knew it pissed you off, so he just wanted to rub it in a little. Yeah, he, I think he just wanted to piss you off in practice, get make you a little hungrier. I think probably uh, when we played the next game. Now we did touch on it a little bit. Did you ever see? Did he ever? And he was a quiet leader, but a very, very powerful leader. And I don't want to downplay his significance as in the leadership role. But did you ever see him lose his temper and yell at the team? Uh, yeah, there was a couple of times. I, I wouldn't say. Well, yeah, he did actually. There was a couple <laughs> of times he stood up and and started screaming and yelling and uh, you know trying to get everybody back on track, so to speak, and. You know, we've lost two or three or four games in a row, and we're down three or four going into the third period. There was a couple of times where he stood up and and let everybody have it. And, yep. uh, you know, but only – it didn't happen very often because Boria wasn't that type of guy. He was, you know, fairly quiet. Uh, but there was a couple of times where, you know, it surprised the hell out of me, I'll be honest with you, that he – you know, he went on a rant like that, but it only happened like maybe, well, no more than a handful of times, the time that I spent in Toronto with him. Well, that's pretty unusual for a player of that elite status to not mm -hmm. lose his temper because usually they, there's demanding on themselves as they are on everybody else. And you know what, Mike, I think that he understood what was going on and yeah, he I understood Harold better than anybody. And I think 
I think that's the reason why he didn't do it more often. I think because he realized that no matter what he said or we just weren't good enough because uh, Harold wouldn't pay money for a good general manager or a good coach. And I think he was very, very well aware of that. I mean, he had had Roger Nielsen before, who was a great coach, and other guys. And when I got there, everything was upside down. And I think that's probably what it, why he didn't stand up and, and, you know, get loud more often because he knew the circumstances. Well, there's a couple of things I'd like to get into, but I want to leave that for the interview because they're covered it covered in that. Um, but one of the things also is when he ended up in Detroit and you were no longer with the Leafs, did you guys ever talk after? Uh, yeah, not very long. I mean, I would just see him at the game, and after the game, I would see him for five minutes, and then he'd be taken off, and and I'd have to get on the bus uh, to go back to the hotel or whatever. So uh, a couple of times, but um just never really had an opportunity to have a real good conversation with him uh until last april actually uh when matthews broke the record and i saw him at scotia bank arena and i had a about a 45 minute chat with him in the seats there and it was it was unbelievable uh to see him again and to talk to him for that length of time and and then on all of a sudden unfortunately uh yeah. A few months later, he was uh, diagnosed, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Well, let me ask you this. The, uh, during that conversation, did they ever come up like, you know, we always, no matter where you are work or whatever it is, you always think what could have been. Did you guys have that kind of conversation that, geez, imagine if we'd had just, and you don't even have to name, if we'd had such and such coaching us or such and such as an owner, like, what could have been done with the core players we had? Because if you look back at some of the players that went through that organization in the 80s, mm -hmm. there were some pretty good hockey players. Yeah, and we never talked about that. I, I think it was something that both of us knew. Yep. But we didn't want to get into the, a long discussion about that. You know, like yeah, I got you. we knew that in 85, 86, we had probably and Wendell even said that too. He said we had a better team then than we did in ninety-two and ninety-three, but we didn't have the general manager or the coach that could get us over the top. And mm -hmm. so I think I think we knew that we both knew that. And there was just no sense in rehashing it all over again and talking about it. And you know, I was with a different team, he was with a different team. I didn't think yeah. it was worth it. And I'm pretty sure he did too. Well, I, that, I guess the reason why the question comes up so much is there's probably no better place to win in sports than in Toronto if you want to stand the cup. Yeah. So it's just when, you know, when the core is sort of in place and in, in a good position to just be that close or just to have it there, but just not have that right person controlling the wheels. Mm -hmm. It's just got to be frustrating. It, it's very frustrating. And you know, and, and what pisses me off more than anything else is when, you know, I, like I went to the Hall of Fame one time and they were doing a, uh, it was a film on the on the Maple Leafs or something. It was each decade they reviewed. And they, they, uh, they keep saying the 80s was the worst decade in Leaf history. Well, we went to the second round twice when I was there. We made the playoffs four times. So I would say that wasn't the worst era or decade of, <laughs> Maple Leaf hockey, you know, and you also had Boria, you had Wendell, uh, myself, who was the first player to score 50 goals in a season. 
So a lot of good things happened. We just, unfortunately, we had Harold as our owner and we had nobody to run, uh, you know, steward the ship. Well, just before we get to Boyle, I mean, the final comment and all that I'll say where I was kind of leading to is I remember Bill Waters, at least I, I was actually at this game, Toronto lost 5 nothing one night. I, I, I believe it was to Minnesota. And he was interviewed after and he said, when are you guys going to finally wake up? Look, there's two teams in the ice last night. One team is a business team. The other team is a hockey team. And the hockey mm -hmm. team won 5 nothing. The business team, you're not going to win it's the man's money. He can do what he wants. He doesn't want to spend the money on the players. You're going to get what you got. When are you guys going to wake up and realize it's been like this for the last 15 years or wherever, whatever the number he used. And it's yeah. not going to change. And it's not up to us. If somebody wants to step forward and buy the team, you can go and spend your own money. But the other team you saw last night, there were definitely two different teams on the ice. Yeah, I agree with him on that. And, and, you know, and then all of a sudden you saw exactly what happened when Harold passed away and, I uh, forget the gentleman's name. What are you on Farms or something? Steve Stavros, Stavros. Yeah. And then he bought the team and look what happened after that. You know, they yeah. brought in good general managers, uh, good coaches, and they had some success. And unfortunately, if we had had somebody up top, you know, running the ship from a general manager standpoint, maybe some of those 18 year olds wouldn't have been brought in when they were, and they would have been able to go back to junior and mature mentally and physically and then be better players. And, yep. you know, but unfortunately, it, it, you know, I think we all knew, we all knew what was going on. It was just, there just wasn't anything uh, from a player standpoint that you could do about it other than go out and give a hundred percent every game. And other than that, uh, there wasn't anything else we could do. No, you could just play. So I think, I think just take on that note. I think what we'll do is we'll turn it over to the second part of the Boy interview. Uh, and I think you'll hear him sort of echo some of the same sentiments, but from his <laughs> angle and from his perspective and the talk about his captaincy and all those type of things and some of the advice he gave to some people following behind him. But I think you'll enjoy that. So have a listen. Yep. Boy, just picking up from there now that, I mean, you, you go from Buffalo, you go to Philadelphia and you play the, you know, you fight the toughest guy in the league. Going through the rest of the league, well, let's, let's just speed the question up a little bit here. Your brother, in 1972, played a game against Team Canada. Yep. And he had a little run-in with a guy by the name of Phil Esposito. Remember the – were you at that game, by the way? I played that game. You pl oh, you played in it too. And yeah. he uh, – okay, so he um, had a little problem with Phil. Now, did any of the players say anything to you when you entered the league and were playing? Did they give you any shots about your brother? No, uh, no, no, because it, I, I think like, you know, Phil, he, he got a little, uh, I don't know why he got so upset, but, but I think they had, they had a, I think, exhibition game in Gothenburg before another uh, world tournament that Espo went to. Uh, and that's one of, there was a lot, a lot of, not fighting, but it was all high sticking. And, and my brother was really a tough guy. So he never backed off. And, you know, Canadians, when they come to Europe, and they always think we're strongest and toughest, right? And and they think they can, you know, you she can switch it. But then when it's, when you hit hit them back, then they said, "What the hell is going on?" You know, they're not supposed to hit us back. And that's what he did. And that's why Espo that didn't like Sig. So now, did any of the who 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 do you recall anybody that really tried to challenge you? Like I mean, every team they try to take run at you. But yeah. anybody in particular you remember going through the league the first time that? 
went after you? I, I mean, in the 70s, there was, <laughs> there was a lot of them. Every, every <laughs> team had, you know, and maybe not the first year, but that was, that was tough. You know, everybody tried to get hit you and try to get, get you off the ice. But then in, when uh, Philly got, you know, really, you know, when they won the Stanley Cup and everything, then, and really, really scared. Not, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of guys in my team, too. They, they hated to play against Philly because they were so rough because we didn't have no tough guys. But then all of a sudden after a couple of uh, games or a couple of years, then we got Tiger and a few other guys. Then we had some more like, you know, toughness. So then that was so much easier for us. Well, now what about, okay, so let's keep on with that Philly theme. A couple of those playoff battles with you guys. Uh-huh. I, I recall one moment, I think probably defining moment for you. I, I think watching you play in way back in those days, the night that, you got jumped by sucker punched and jumped by Mel Bridgman at the playoffs and the yep. series was pretty rough. There was the battle in the penalty box, you know, Roy McMurtry report, the police charges, all that stuff. And it was just, you know, it was the way the flyers were playing at the time, which was setting hockey back, but that's mm-hmm. another whole story. But the following game, you scored a goal, a very emotional goal mm-hmm. against them. And you, like you danced down the boards, like, and I think that was a defining moment for you. I don't know if you feel the same way, but we're all of a sudden the fans, they were totally bought into you, that you showed up, you got beat up by those the guys, like the thugs and the assassins, and you showed up the next game and scored a big goal and didn't quit. Well, that's true. I mean, I, either I was stupid or, or I don't know, but I never, <laughs> never... Never, I didn't really think of it. Like, you know, I knew they were after me. And of course, you know, after a couple of years when I was more offensive and was much better, they really tried. I knew that. They tried to get me out. They tried to, you know, so I always say they tried to kill me. You know, I knew that, you know, when those guys tried to, to uh, when, when they shut the puck in, when, when they are Schultz and the, the, the hound dog or whatever they're called, yeah, I knew they were not going to like skate in with a puck. They shot it in my corner and they weren't going to fucking kill me in there. So yeah. I sort of jumped on the puck a little earlier. I sort of, I could see that, you know, so I jumped in, they got the puck and, and then and pass it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, when you poor check, you come in maybe one on one side, one on the other side. No, no, no. There was three guys coming right in my corner, but I passed it up and then I up with my stick and tried to sort of protect myself. But then we had three on two and stuff, so I knew that. Yeah, and do you remember that goal uh, you scored that I talked about? Oh, yeah. No, that was really fun. And that was a little bit what me and Daryl, we had sort of in practice, you know, sometimes I'd pass it up to him and i follow the play. And he went, you know, just a little, he did a little turn. And then he looked up and I went right in the middle of the defenseman and went in. I, we, that was sort of a play we had from before. So I, I was all alone with uh, Perron. And uh, luckily I scored. <laughs> no, that was, I mean, I think that, I think that was a moment. Any fan from that era, I think, would point at that as probably that pivotal moment in your mm-hmm. career in Toronto that just sort of embraced you with the fair. The fans just totally embraced you. And I mean, I don't know, Rick, did you ever, do you remember that goal? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I was probably, he was too young. Though. I think I was probably you too young. You're only a kid. Well, no, I was playing, I was probably playing junior then. So I, I was, you know, 17 or so, but, uh, but, Playing with Borea for seven years, like, I don't think people realize how tough he was. Like, you know, I mean, and big and strong and 
I mean, I didn't see him take shit from anybody. He got hit. That was fine. He just, you know, kept playing. And I think people don't realize, and I don't mean the toughness in fighting, but how tough Boria was to be able to go through those two decades, the 70s and 80s, which was, you know, they, those two decades were, were fighting, high-sticking, spearing, whatever the heck you wanted to do, and he got away with it. And he got through that because I, I think he was a, a lot tougher than people give him credit for and, uh, and stronger than people give him credit for. And the one thing I always, people ask me a lot of questions and I always talk about Boria's offense and, and how many points he had and everything. But I, I don't remember too many defensemen that were as good defensively as Boria, blocking shots. And I remember in practice, he used to piss me off all the time I'd be going down the right side. I'd have a step on him. And then he'd reach in between my stick and my body, give it a little flick, and the puck would go into the corner. And then I would just turn and like, you asshole. Like, <laughs> and <laughs> it was so frustrating. But he was so good at it that, you know, when, when you get in the game, he'd do the same thing. And it was, it was wonderful to see. Now, Boria, you're like going through the league, uh, after a couple of times through, what was there any surprises that you found? Like, was the league better than you thought, as you expected, and were the players, you know, as you thought they'd be, or did were you did somebody really stand out and surprise you? There, what were your thoughts going through the league the first couple of times? Uh, I mean, I you know, like like we talked about before, '72. I played the Canadians, and I. Yeah, I think I've seen some games before that, but uh, it was just like you know some some old games. But I I knew that was the top gunners, you know, like we came over Canadian yeah. team, the top of national hockey, and we could like our national could handle them. Those guys, it was really really, you know, there was I think it was a tie game that we played that game. So then I knew like they were not so they were good. But they were not best, so so I knew like we could handle it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I assume that. I mean, you'd have to ha you have to have that thought in your mind to be, be successful in sports. And right, that brings me to you and I met at one of the unveilings. And we spoke, and you told me about Inga Hammerstrom. You always suggested that he was probably the best of all you guys from that period. But his timing, if he'd come into the league today, I think you told me he would be a superstar. The timing of him coming to the league just wasn't the same. Two things I want to ask you. First off, follow up on that. And secondly, Harold Ballard with that, you know, the bombastic owner that we've talked about, made that famous quote about the eggs in the corner and, you know, coming out with no eggs broken. How emotionally or psychologically emotional was that for Inga? And did that have some impact on you too? Well, I mean, I... That was pretty stupid to say that in the paper. I mean, Harold, you know, sometimes Harold didn't even think. Like, you know, he said some stupid things. You know, Harold was a nice man when you knew him. He was fantastic to me. But but he said some stupid things. And I I didn't like, you know, I didn't really care so much about it. But I know I know Inge really, that hurt Inge. Because, you know, Inge with his skating ability and sk playing hockey, he really played well for Toronto Maple Leafs. But of course, he wasn't the guy who, who going in the corner and try to, you know, like, you know, hit a guy and kill him or something like that, you know, or hit back. 
because you know I was brought up like in a different way, so I I didn't care if somebody would I I could hit back and whatever I didn't care who it was, but Inga was not that way, and I of course like you said Inga, if you would be in a, like in the say but maybe eighty maybe nineties I mean he would be a superstar because with his skating ability and shooting and everything he was really good. Uh, I mean, I, the, the other thing, too, I guess, is, I mean, just we're all on that topic of how tough it is. We've touched on the playoffs. When you went into the playoffs um, for the first time, the intensity level rises to a level that people just, it's, it's unexplainable to people unless you actually experience it. Your first time going through, did you actually sense that, or did the players warn you that the intensity level would increase volumes when you started playing for real in the playoffs? Oh yeah, I mean, it's intense. You could see, you could see it in the in the dressing room. Everybody was just going like you know more crazy, and of course on the ice it was the same thing. You know, everybody sort of uh, you gave it more than ever. You know, in every game. But of course you have a you always you know got to play your game. Not naturally, you can't go all over the limit. But but of course it was something. You're going you were going extra somehow. Unless you have Red Kelly with the pyramid power, and then that uh, would solve everything, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they gave a lot of power. Uh, well, that was a fun thing too. I couldn't, you know, for, from the beginning. You understand what he was trying to do. I think he mentally tried to sort of get you a little stronger and, and better. You know, it, it works mentally, not not. You know, yeah, we put, exactly. we put the sticks in the in the inside it and everything like that. And uh, and I, you know, for me. I said, well, if that's going to help me, fine. I mean, I did it too. Like, you know, it, it can't hurt you anyway. So, you know, but then he had a, he had a pyramid in, under, the, under the bench too. So hopefully he needed some more stamina. I don't know. Did you do any uh, crazy things like that, Rick? Any rituals for you guys? Hockey players are superstitious, as we all know. Uh, what about some of the crazy things your teams have done over the years or anything? Uh... No, not really. I mean, we, uh, I wasn't a real superstitious guy. I, I'm pretty sure I put my equipment on the same way every single time. I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was just habit that I put my whatever left skate on first and would then right skate, whatever it is. But um, I guess you probably could call it superstitious, but I think it was more of just habit. But I would always put my, I'd take my stick the same way all the time and I would put it in a certain spot uh, just outside the dressing room before we would go out to play. So there was, yeah, there was a few things like that that I did and and few things before the game, I would always tap the post and and in the warm up, I would always take a bunch of pucks around the net and I'd always, you know, go upstairs with them to make sure that if I ever got that situation in the game that I was going to get it over the goalie so yeah there was a few things that I did but uh, you know it's not something that you well those things I did on purpose I did you know purposely but some of the things were were just habit some were superstitious well you know hey listen I can tell you guys I play beer league hockey now and uh, if you sit in one guy's spot you're dead you'll, they'll catch you off the team if you <laughs> beer league hockey, you can't sit in the guy's spot now, Borea, uh, speak to us a little bit about your thoughts on Roger Nielsen when you played for him. Well, Roger, Roger was really, uh, he was a European uh, style of, of coaching. He was really, when he came in, he, there was sort of like, uh, 
where I came from. That, that's how he, he, he looked at the videos and everything. And he had a lot, a lot of great ideas. I really liked him. He was really, really good. I, and I couldn't believe they really gave him the hat. I mean, uh, I, I liked him. I, I loved him. Really, he was really good. Well, I mean, in the stu you talk about the stupid things of Ballard when he wanted to put the bag over his head for coming yeah. back to the, that just. No, but that was just stupid things. I can't believe, like, you know what? Yeah. I, 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 we couldn't believe it either. Like, when I said, what the hell is going on? And, like, you know, <laughs> we, like, we were confused. You're like, you know, so crazy. You know, you can't believe it. So, like, you know. This is the NHL. Well, that... It's supposed to be the NHL. And you got a clown show going on here with the owner. <laughs> Yeah, we try to play yeah, hockey yeah. and then do crazy things. But it was a good laugh. Well, that was a big, that was like crazy. That was the beginning of the end, so to speak, because Roger was a fantastic coach. Mm -hmm. And then after Roger, I mean, well, you were there through it all too. But uh, you had Floyd, you had Joe Crozier, you had Mike Nicklock, you had Dan mm -hmm. Maloney, you had John Brophy, like. I mean, after Roger Nielsen, we had we never had a coach that had systems. We never had a coach, I don't think, that looked at a video unless it was showing us how bad we were on any given night. And I, I think that was the most frustrating thing for me anyway when I came to Toronto was the fact that, you know, I had heard so much about Roger and how he was ahead of his time. And now all of a sudden we went back in time and with all the coaches that we had. So... That was a frustrating time for me. It must have been for you too, Corey. Oh yeah, no, but I agree hundred percent because Roger had so many good ideas, like and really fun ideas to 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 win the hockey games. And I agree with the other coaches. I mean, like you said, that we never saw a video game or a show, or like you know, you should do this and that. It was just like you know, screaming and. Uh, Throwing stuff sometimes, you know. I, well, I talk about broke, you know, like coming in the dressing room and destroying the whole dressing room, and the trainers were going crazy, you know, you know, everything down, you know, and then he went out. <laughs> that was that was our tactic, you not know, to play hockey, you know. Uh, you know so. While we're going through all these Hall of Famers as coaches, now what about when Punch came back? Like, did you like what was your experience with Punch for the short time you were working for him, so to speak? You talk, you're asking me? Yeah. Punch. Uh, see, I didn't know too much about him, you know, before that. You know, of course, you know, he was, uh, well, he was the one who they gave him, like, the Stanley Cup 67. So, of yeah. course, you thought he was good. But he was really, you know, had, I don't know. He brought so many Buffalo players coming in to our team. And, and it was so, uh, it happened so many things in, like, Outside the dressing room and inside the dressing room. I think we had more TV guys and, and, and newspaper guys there because I always won every day something happened. And, and then we came in there and every time they come in the restaurant, okay, what's what's going on today? Not not like not, that was not how you think about the are we gonna play hockey? No. What what happened today? So yeah, I mean, it was like the Barnum and Bailey it was like the Barnum and yeah. Bailey circus there on a daily basis. You got Harold would I Harold's goal was to be the headlines in the sports on every newspaper every day. And he pretty much accomplished it by saying the stupidest things that, that he could possibly say or do. And Borey is right. It was like you came in every day and it wasn't about, okay, how, what are we going to do today? How's practice? How are we going to prepare for the game or whatever it might be? It was, oh, well, what the hell happened today? 
<laughs> you know, and that's the way it was for for my whole seven years anyway. Now, Boria, at, at any point during before Imlac and that, when the WHA was in existence, no. did you ever consider playing in the league? Did your frustrations with the Leafs get to the point where maybe I should look at that, or maybe they were offering you monetarily a lot more money? No way. No, no way. Because you know what? At Toronto Maple Leafs treated me so good, and I love to play for Toronto Maple Leafs, believe me. And, and you know, play at the Garden said, I'm so happy to, you know, I had the chance to do that and play 16 years for Toronto, you know, just even that. But it, the guys, you know, Jim Gregory, Jim McLemore, all the guys said they really treated us good. You know, I, I really, for me, it was just like, you know, fantastic time. I never wanted to be traded. I can't say the same thing about Jerry Boria, but because no. he didn't treat me the same way he treated you, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, Boria, 1970. Jerry, like, you know, I know he, he had, had me under his arm, so I know he treated me so good, you know, and, and I know. I don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't know everything. He what he did to you and somebody else. But I mean, he. But for to me, he was really good. So I, I can't say so much more. Now, Boy, in nineteen seventy. Oh, sorry, Rick. Go ahead. Finish. Sorry. Okay. I, I wanted to ask you, and I, this is something that I've wondered for so long. But because it, Harold Ballard came to me in, in when I was twenty-two years old, and he didn't ask me. But he, he just told me, you're the captain. Yeah. And my thought was, okay, if I say no, he's going to trade me. And I don't want to be traded. I love it here in Toronto. I want to stay here. Did he ask you to be captain? Because I know that Matt's called you when he was asked, and you told him not to turn it down. Were you ever asked to be captain when Daryl left? If they ask, if they ask me to be a captain, yes, yeah, yeah. After Daryl left, yeah, they did. They did. Uh, uh, not the first year, but after. I don't know if it was the same year or the year after. He wanted me to be a captain, and they asked me actually twice. One one year, and I said no, because they, I think my English. I didn't want to be like you know out and have like speeches and all that stuff. A little bit like that, but also. I knew what, what uh, Daryl went through before he left. And uh, I, I didn't want to go through that. I want to play hockey and not be like in between the management and the players. I wanted to be with, with the players. That's what I like. I love to play with the guys and play with, you know, and be with the guys. So I didn't want to be some somebody's, you know, who was between everybody. So that's why I told they they had meetings with me and Harold said, you got to be the captain. And I said, no, I don't want to be the captain. So we, I don't know if we, we didn't have a captain for two, three years, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we had three A's instead. So, and, and I was the captain anyway. So I, I was sort of holding on to it anyway. So that was not a big deal really, but I didn't want to be, go through what Daryl did. And I think that, that you said yes, that you said yes to the captain, that was good because Toronto may be a captain but Toronto may please. I mean, I, if I look back, I should say yes, of course. But, you know, there happened too much under, under that time, the, those two, three years when the, before Daryl left. I mean, there was no fun time, you know, not for, La, for Lanny Daryl and everybody who sort of got traded because punch. I mean, uh, 
And that has well, my, yeah, in my case, I, like I was 22 years old. I knew I wasn't ready to take over as a captain at that point. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I'm pretty darn sure that if I hadn't told Harold no, that I, he might have traded me. And yeah. that was something that I, at that point in my career, I certainly didn't want to get traded again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did say yes even though I, I knew that I wasn't really prepared for it at that time, but I had a lot of help from you and some of the other guys. And I think a couple of years later, then I was ready. And, uh, you know, so uh, thankfully I had the help of yourself and Ronnie Ellis and guys like that uh, to help me through it because I don't think I was ready at 22, but I, don't, I didn't think I had much choice at that time. Uh, when the owner comes to you and says, you're the captain. Like, okay, you know. You know what? And it's hard. Like, you know, it it is Toronto. I always say Toronto is mecca of hockey. That's what I say. And, you know, it's not easy to be a captain in in Toronto because they expect so much from a captain and, of course, from the team and from the guys. And you guys are supposed to play hockey and be good. And you're supposed to be a captain. Then you got to really take care of everybody. And it's, it's a big job. And yeah, hey, Ricky, you did a good job. You know, and just to say, yes, you did the right thing. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I don't think you heard the second part of Squid's question. Did uh, The story goes that Matt Sundin called you when he was asked to be captain and you told him, take it. Don't, you'll regret it later if you don't. Is that a true story? That's a true story, yes. And so what did you tell you? just told him, take it. You don't... No, yeah, because he said, you know, they asked me to be a captain. And I just said, listen, I told him the story that, you know, they asked me to be a captain. And, and I said, no, but I, you know, afterwards, of course, now I should have said yes, because I, you know, I should have done it because be a captain for Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, that's, that's really big. And, and uh, that's, I mean, it's not like, you know, <laughs> the whole thing, but, but that would be nice if I'd done it. But that's what I'm saying to Squid, like you you said yes, that was the right thing. I know it was hard for you to do it at that at the time because you were 22. I mean, that was that was really good for you, for you to do that. But it was it was a big honor. Uh, it still is today uh, to be the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He, he played with the Maple Leafs to start with is an honor to me anyway. And but to be the captain of that team and, and wear that C on your on your sweater. To me, was was probably the biggest honor that that I could ever have. Yeah. So, was- for you, um, you know, you guys, as we've discovered here again today, and everybody from that era knows, you guys are a very close knit team, coming out of the seventies. Now, in seventy nine, as the story goes, um, you know, Hedberg and Nielsen both wanted to come and play for the Maple Leafs when the WHA was breaking up, but Uncle Hal said he couldn't afford them. So off they went and ended up playing for the Rangers. And with all the other things going on around the hockey club, uh, then Bunch brought in and bringing back all those other guys and all the disheaval going on with Sittler and all that stuff. Then all of a sudden they make a trade for this guy whose face is on the screen here with us, along with Bill Gerlego. Bill thought through that whole process. And then when these two kids arrived, it got traded for a couple of pretty popular players too. Uh-huh. Now, of course, I mean, that, that, I mean, I didn't know Billy and, and uh, we played against each other, of course, but I can't remember when I played against them. But I mean, oh, always when somebody got traded to your team, I mean, I always, you know, 
I didn't feel sorry for them, but I mean, I, I knew it was hard. It was not easy to go and leave your your best, you know, buddies from your team and then come to another team. And then you got to be, I knew Tiger went away, but he was one of my best friends and still is. But of course, but I, you know what hockey is, when you get traded, you're traded. You can't do nothing about it because I saw man, so many guys got traded and you can't do nothing about it. So when when uh, when uh, Rick and, and, and Billy comes, you know, you they were welcome like crazy. I mean, I when I, I knew they were going to help us, and they, they I wanted them to come in and feel the best. You know, you came to the best team, and and, and uh, come here. You're you're so welcome. Now, the first part of my call was on Hedberg and Nielsen when they wanted to join the Leafs in '79. Uh, was that a true story? I mean, that's the rumor that's out there. I had, you know what? I never heard of that. Not for from I have somebody said now for like maybe maybe for a few years back, but never heard of that at that time and that they were coming here. Jerry McIntyre told us that story. And oh, uh, really? I didn't know that. And and Harold couldn't afford them. <laughs> wow, that's too bad. Well no, he didn't want to afford them. He probably <laughs> didn't want to afford them. <laughs> he could afford them, he just didn't want to pay them. <laughs> yeah, probably. They, but you know what? They didn't want to have another Swede there. That, that's why they were they were enough. With <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a I got a, a trick question here for both of you guys. So now you guys sat beside each other for seven years in the dressing room. Okay. Well, Rick sat between you and Ronnie Ellis, I believe. Um, Boy, you tell us something about Squid that people may not know, like a, a little story about him. And Rick, you do the same about Boria. Well. <laughs> Well, you know why they call him Squid, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, I won't tell them this, that story. Though. That's a good one. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, no, Ricky, you know, you could see when he came in, you know, he, he is a goal scorer, you know. But the only thing, I tried, and you know, after a while, when you could see, you know, how good he was, like he excellent shot and everything. I want to try it. I said, Wait, can I try your stick? And I got them Titan stick. That was heavier than fine, fine wood. That was, you know, I couldn't believe he could play with a stick like that. It was no balance, nothing. But he could score goals, believe me. <laughs> okay, your turn there, Squid. Well, the only thing I remember is coming in and after, I don't know, let's say a month or, or, or so of being there, so I got Boria on my right side and I got Ronnie Ellis on my left side. And of course, Ronnie was a born again Christian at the time, although he never preached it to you or anything like that. He was very, Ronnie was one of the, the most gentlemanly persons I've ever met. But anyway, I'm sitting there and, and I, I just remember thinking one day, I said, Boria, Boria was a good part here. And, uh, so I said, it feels like I got the devil on this side and I got the angel on this side. And I said, which way do I go? Like the cartoons. And I go, which way do I go? So I went a little bit more to the right side, to the, to the devil's side, and, uh, as I called it, which was really wasn't the devil, but um, and more the partying side. And, uh, uh, but I couldn't help it because this guy here was, was like so good and and at everything, and including partying. And I said, you know, I want to be with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Borea, uh, just uh, going back a little bit, uh, the 1976 Canada Cup, and you're playing for Sweden. Yep. And I was at this game, actually, uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens. 
the ovation you got before that start of that game when they introduced you, do you remember, Alain, what was going through your mind standing on the blue line that night? Well, uh, you know what? First was the first game was actually with USA, right? And I got the standing ovation. I, I had no clue at all. I, you know, a little bit, you know, I knew like, uh, you know, Toronto, like they were so, uh, you know, Canadians, Americans. So I thought they like maybe, maybe boo me. And I had something like that. I don't know. Now I hear, here I come in with a, I have a Swedish sweater on and not uh, sort of a Toronto Maine police sweater yeah. on. So. And all of a sudden, you know, they started to, and I like, they started to clap their hands and all this stuff when I, when I came out from the bench. And then when I stand there, I said, oh my God. And then all of a sudden they're standing up. And I couldn't believe, like, they never, st like, stopped either. So I started to turn around a little bit, and then instead of, I I couldn't understand what they were doing. But that was amazing. Now, afterwards, you know, I understood, you know, they really, you know, somehow they really liked me, you know, because, you know, I've done something good there. You know, that's what they wanted to show me. And I really, I was really appreciate that. But on the other hand, you know, what I forgot, they when I played Canada, yeah. we did the same thing. Yes. And that game was, that was worse because Daryl and Lanny was playing in the other side. And I, I know, I don't know if they got a standing ovation, but I got a standing ovation and more than like, you know, those guys who, who were Canadians and Canada is Canada, you know, for, you know, the best team they have in, in Canada. That was, that was strange a little bit. <laughs> well, some of the Team Canada players were pissed because they said, why are they giving this guy a standing ovation? He should be cheering for us. We're representing your country and you're cheering for the opposition. See, that's <laughs> why, that, you know, a little bit like that. That's what I felt. I felt, you know, like, you know, what, what the hell are they doing? They're not supposed to share up the other guys, not me. <laughs> but it was nice. Oh, you know, it's so nice that they did that to me. Amazing. Yeah, well, you deserved it at the time. You were playing phenomenally. Um, now, inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 96. Uh, your yeah. first Swedish player to go into the hall. And in 98, you're elected to the top 100 players of all time. I mean, your retirement of your sweater. Has this all sunk on in you, the type of career that you've had? Uh, it's amazing. I, you, know, I, you know, when I got into the Hockey Hall of Fame, when they called me, that they, I cried afterwards because I think... It's so many memories, you know, when you go through, like, you know, I played 16 or 17 years in National Hockey League. And, I, and then I suppose, because, you know, you heard so much about it. You were down there, you, you, you talked to the guys, the older guys, and the, the guys who were in the Hall of Fame. And you knew, I knew that was so important. It was the best you can ever get when, when you quit hockey. And I'm, and I'm supposed to be there, a Swedish guy coming from the north part of Sweden, from nowhere. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame. That was amazing. That was so big. Now, do you ever sit back and reflect that that, you know, day back in 73, you fly across from Sweden to Canada and start playing in the National Hockey League. And you look around the league and it's you and Inga and nobody else, really. And now today, how the game has expanded. And it's, as we said earlier in the, on this call, you know, you could have five or six Swedes, a couple of Americans, a couple of Germans, like, like everywhere from around the world. Are, are you amazed at how the game has grown? And did you real? Did you ever reflect back on the impact you've had or contribution you made by you coming over and having the success you did? Well, it, say for ten years ago, maybe when somebody said that, you know, I, I didn't realize. I said no. I mean, of course, I did something, but I mean, it was no big deal. But today, I understood 
I've been understanding more that I, I must have done something uh, right, you know, some impact on a lot of people because, you know, like Jerry said, that he started the whole thing when he went over there because there was no scouts over there. And he was the first scout over there and then he came back and then all of a sudden there was, you know, 100 scouts over there in Sweden and, and, and Europe to try to get their uh, hockey players. Yeah, and now, um, I mean, again, if you take a, it's it's one of those things, if you think about it this way, let's take the sort of opposite approach. Like 1972, the Summit Series changed the game of hockey forever. Everybody's in agreement with that. But think about this. What if Canada had lost? Would the game have changed the same way? And uh -huh. I say the same thing to you when you came over a year later. What if you hadn't been successful? Like, what would have happened? Just think about how the course of history may have changed with those two instances Forward. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you know I must have showed something. You know that, that, <laughs> that, that I agree with you. Somehow, somehow, if I wouldn't done really bad on the Inga, then then probably the Scott wouldn't go over. So, uh, but I think I think maybe they saw saw something what we did. We did something right. Yes, you certainly did. So we're getting near the end here. We've got now squid. Anything you want to throw at uh, Bory before we wrap this up? No, I. Uh... You know what, I just want to say that it was a pleasure playing with him uh, for seven years. And and I got pitch, a picture of my the first year that I scored my 50th goal. He's in the picture on the point on the power play. And uh, it, it was just a real treat playing with him for seven years and watching what he could do. And and uh, like I said, I, I don't think people realize how, how tough he was and how good he was defensively. I don't think people give him enough credit for that. And especially the toughest, toughest part of it, because I've seen this guy block shots, get hit, just keep playing. Like, I mean, it's just, uh, to me, it was remarkable to, to watch him go through that and uh, continue to, to keep on going. And then that horrible night in Detroit, yep. and uh, you had your face cut and, uh, you know, I think he was playing within less than a week. And, uh, you know, like that shows how tough he was to come back and play after that in such a short period of time. Now, I, uh, Bory, I, I, the other day I had a chat with... I, I, I have to say something too, oh, Squid. Uh, yeah. Rick, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, like you know, you're a great teammate and me, we had such a good time, you know, on the ice and off the ice. I mean, I, I will never forget you and, and Billy and everybody, you know, we had so, so fun. I mean, believe me, that was, you know, like <laughs> so many stories we have in, in our mind. And I know when we, man, when I get a little older, when I'm sitting, you know, in my, uh, what do you call that? Not my chair. wheelchair, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Not a wheelchair. <laughs> I'm going to start laughing and laughing the whole time. And uh, I know everybody's going to ask, what, why is he sitting there laughing? <laughs> why? I, gotta well, get I have to agree with you on that. Hey, I'll give you this one here. I talked to Jimmy Devolano the other day, Boria, and he said, I know he signed you your last year. You tried to play there. But he said to me, he said, you know, they, they really respected you as a player, but he also liked the fact that he was going to give a dig to Toronto by taking their best player. <laughs> he said that? Yeah, Jimmy said that. He always takes digs at the Toronto Maple Leafs against me. So oh, he gave me a shot. Oh. <laughs> so okay. now... Um, uh, talk about quickly your, your, your life after hockey. You've got some business ventures, maybe like to tell us about that. Yeah, well, my, my own brand was called Salming, and uh, we, we started with Salming underwear in, in uh, 1991. 
and now we have so much. We have perfumes. We have uh, we have running. You know, running all the equipment from top uh, top to the bottom. And uh, we're running shoes. We got uh, indoors with the same thing for handball, for a floor ball. We got uh, for squash. We got squash rackets. We got we got all kinds of stuff. And so uh, it's really doing well. We all all across. Uh, we're in uh, North America too, and we have agents in Toronto. So we're doing really well across uh, the world. Well, that's fantastic. That's great to okay, hear. So, oh, thanks, Mike. On his product, yeah. I remember when he started the underwear and I said, can you send me some for Joyce for my wife? And uh, whatever, the bras and the panties and all that kind of stuff. And sure enough, he sent them over and uh, she said it was the most comfortable underwear she had ever worn. And uh, she said that, she still says that to this day. And uh, so man, I might have to get you to hook her up again more, yeah, but some. <laughs> But, but you, you know, Squid, you know, they were sexy too, right? Weren't they? Oh, well, yeah, they were. They were, yeah. <laughs> so you liked them too. I know that. Well, yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> hey, boy, he's blushing. Yeah, I know that. I know that. That's what I want him. <laughs> so, hey, now listen, you're going to get to Toronto when you're clear at some point? Yeah, well, we're planning actually going over to, to Hall of Fame weekend. If we, I don't know what's going on. You know, we, we have to wait and see, you know, with the corona and everything. So, but we're definitely going to go over, me and my wife. Well, when you come into Toronto, Squid and I owe you a lunch. So we'll... Yeah, that, yeah, that would be nice. I would love to do that. And we'll set that up for sure. Hopefully you're going to be here that weekend. Well, yes. boy, it's been a, it's been a pleasure, uh, an honor, just a terrific, terrific discussion. We got our technical difficulties out of the way. Yeah. We're able to see you here. I know, uh, I know all our viewers and our listeners are going to love this. And uh, listen, great talking to you. And thanks so much for joining us. Wow, thanks so much. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Moria, thank you very much. It was a blast.